From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Students in some of the state's largest school districts are back in class today in non-traditional ways. We'll get insight into the new reality for parents and kids. So I have to be prepared at any moment to take over and figure it out. Then football players of color at Colorado State University subjected to cruelty and humiliation. It's why the football program's on hold and an independent investigation is underway. I'll speak with a Coloradoan reporter who broke the story and with one of his many corroborating sources. Leadership has a responsibility and they need to be held accountable for the safety and the growth of student athletes. And a contraction that packs a punch fitna. What it means to Colorado Springs poet Nate Marshall. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With the press of a power button and a password pre-saved by his mom, Chase Carroll started first grade in Denver this morning. His mother, Tina, dropped him off on her way to work, just like she did last year. This year, though, he'll go to a private daycare that the family scraped up to pay for. A staff member there will supervise Chase as he hops online with classmates at his public school. Tina is creating ritual where she can for him. Even though I know that he's resilient and able to adapt very easily, I'm nervous for him, but I'm going to do everything possible. I'm still going to dress him in a uniform every single day. We're going to go over, you know, safety, about wearing the mask and all that kind of good stuff. And so I'm hoping that he still gets a school day kind of atmosphere, I would say, where he still gets to socialize, he still gets recess, he gets to meet people. I'm hoping that this is helpful, even though it's a really big financial sacrifice. Tina Carroll is in charge of housing and dining at a local university. We met her last month, and we talked about her dilemma as a single mom with a full-time job deciding how to educate her son during the pandemic. A few days after we first spoke, she found out DPS would be fully online through at least mid-October, and those classes started today. He will have a laptop in his book bag. He will have earphones. He will also have a um, dry erase board. His backpack will be a little bit heavier than mine coming to work. And why is a six-year-old carrying a dry erase board? The dry erase board is for Chase to be able to write and then show it to the screen. Chase's daycare group will have about a half dozen students, probably from different schools and on different schedules. Chase will be online with his Denver public school teacher all morning. At 1230, I want to say it's like independent learning where he can click on, I think it's called Epic. And that's where he can do audiobooks, He can read. They'll have like supplemental math. From his schedule this week, it looks like he'll have dance. So at two o'clock, he will click on a dance. And I'm guessing, this is my guess, is that he needs a space to stand up and be able to dance. And after a couple of weeks, there'll be another elective, maybe art. Even before COVID, Tina spent a lot of time teaching Chase herself. And the car rides home. If you got into my car, the headrest already had an index card on it with the word. We used every inch of time. Even when he didn't think he was learning, I was still teaching. And that won't be changing. 
Tina Carroll says she's paying the daycare about $260 a week. It's a stretch for her budget. My grocery list will look a little bit different. You know, sometimes we'll have like Pizza Friday once a month. And so that'll look a little bit different. So that'll be a little bit, a little bit hard. But as long as the necessities are taken care of, I'm good. That is Tina Carroll. Her son Chase starts first grade today as Denver Public Schools returns with remote learning. And we'll get more perspective on this first day from the bureau chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado. She'd join us right this minute, except that she's another example of a working parent balancing the new normal. She's getting her 10-year-old started in fifth grade virtually, and so we'll be able to check in with her in about 20 minutes. Today is the start of fall semester at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. All football-related activities, practices, workouts, meetings, they're all on hold at CSU after an explosive news article in the Coloradoan. It's that the current coach and the last one verbally abused and were racially insensitive to black players on the team. The reporting has led to an independent investigation. Miles Bloomhart broke the story, and Miles, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Also with us, CSU mental health counselor Jimmy Stewart. He was one of Bloomhart's sources and says he witnessed coaches racially abusing players. Jimmy, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. Appreciate being here. Miles, you document serious allegations made by more than 20 people. Like what? Well, a lot of the, you know, allegations and uh, really their assertions, because these were almost actually 30 people that we talked to. We cross-referenced, we vetted, um, we corroborated to come up with, you know, those stories that were told over and over again. You know, from that, we just saw a pattern where at least some of the athletes experienced the racial insensitivity and abuse. But that also went beyond the players. It went also to the athletic staff as well. The athletic staff being the subject of it? Being the subject of it. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some examples that stood out to you? You know, there was one of the football staff members that said in in a meeting that the new coach, Steve Adazio, does not believe in Black Lives Matter. He said that Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 were distractions to the football team. We had another encounter where a a black student was verbally berated and uh, was actually made to cry in an interaction with Steve Adazio. With Mike Bobo, there were numerous incidents, everything from forcing a heavyweight equipment manager to run wind sprints against the football team to saying racially, racially insensitive remarks to a number of the football players in front of people. Mike Bobo, the most recent past football coach, Steve Adazio, uh, as you mentioned, the current CSU football coach. Well, one of the sources who went on the record for your story, Miles, Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy, what did you tell Miles that you witnessed specifically? First of all, I'd like to say how hard it was to report this stuff. And it was really important. You know, I've been here seven years and I've reported every instance that I've seen and heard about to my superiors. Let me put a finer point on what you just said. It was hard to report. Do you mean it was difficult to be heard or you're just saying it was difficult to have to step up and do that? Well, actually both, but it was really hard to step up and do that. 
I really like CSU. I've liked my time here. You know, I, I went through the proper channels and some of this stuff gets pretty heinous. And what I found is that in this system, because of the money, you know, it becomes a cost containment thing. So it becomes very, very dicey for people to hear the truth. And so as I spoke to my bosses and told them about it for seven years, they basically told me this system doesn't really want to hear about this stuff. And for me, my job is to deal with the emotional and mental well-being of student-athletes. Mm. I'm the senior coordinator for counseling service for student-athletes. And give us examples, and I just want to warn our listeners that uh, some of this language may be difficult to hear. Having said that, what, you... what is, yeah, give us some examples of what you witnessed and what you heard from athletes. One of the things, there was an early morning workout and players were instructed that missing any kind of reps in a drill would be punishment, would result in punishment, which is actually illegal. You know, the NCAA bans that, especially since, you know, the young man in Maryland died. And so they included bathroom breaks. Well, the young man didn't want to uh, have to get punished. So during the drill, he had to go to the bathroom. He ended up going and defecating in a can and then trying to get back into the line. He ends up messing his his shorts and ends up having to stop in the meetings. The coaches made fun of him, laughed about it, laughed about his humiliation and said, he's going to still have to do this tomorrow. Was this athlete black? This athlete was black. And so the next day his punishment was he had to do this over and the players were saying, and coaches were saying, clapping and yelling. If you, in your pants, you won't have to make up mat drills. And so they made fun of him even after he was humiliated. You know, this was reported to senior administration and they were aware of the incident, but no action was taken to protect him. And that is, is unbelievably heinous. Another instance where there's a black female administrator called out in front of the team. She had gotten a, a weave and Mike Bobo said, wow. Love that weave, how much you pay for it, or something to that effect. Another instance that I witnessed was on a game. There was a, uh, the lights went out and a black player uh, who had particularly dark skin, Bobo yelled, open your mouth so we can have some light or something to that effect. And people sort of uncomfortably laughed. So, you know, one of the things that I want to say, too, is that we talk about race, and that is really important, but sometimes I think it can get lost that a lot of this stuff with these coaches becomes entitlement and a feeling like I can do anything I want because nobody can retaliate. Nobody can do anything. So it's sort of very cruel. And I just want to say this too. I played in the NFL for four years. I have an NFL retirement. I also worked for the military for seven years. So I'm not a, I'm not a guy who doesn't understand how these cultures work. I was in the arena. So I understand these things, the difference between discipline versus punishment, boundaries. I'm not a guy you can just blow off and say, oh, he's just a touchy-feely counselor. Mm. I I just want to say that uh, in other reports, black players were called boy, that a black offensive player was called silverback, a reference to... A type of gorilla. Yeah, they named a formation Silverback 
for two black tight ends, and they named that formation Silverback. And he did call people boy all the time. And one of the one of the ways we white people make excuses is people will say, well, did he do that to whites and blacks? Hmm. And he did. Bobo did that. However, when you do that to a black man as a white man, that not only hurts and wounds him, it also brings up all the history of racism in this country. We're talking about reports of a toxic culture in the athletics department at Colorado State University. The school's former football coach, Mike Bobo, spoke to the AP late last week. He's now at South Carolina and says he's offended by these accusations of abuse. Quote, one thing I can say is we were a family there. We loved each other. And I can honestly say I treated people like I would like to be treated, like I would want them to treat my children. We invited the current coach, Steve Adazio, athletic director Joe Parker, and CSU President Joyce McConnell onto the show, but they all declined citing the investigation. Parker issued a statement announcing the pause in football activities August 7th. It read in part, CSU is committed to being an anti-racist university, and we will not tolerate any behavior or climate that goes against that core value. The statement goes on to say, we believe it is our responsibility to make sure that all student-athletes feel welcomed and valued as members of an inclusive athletics community. This all came to light because of reporting by the Coloradoan newspaper in Fort Collins. And let's rejoin my conversation with journalist there, Miles Bloomhart, and one of his sources, CSU mental health counselor Jimmy Stewart. Miles, I wonder... If you think the independent investigation is likely to be transparent and meaningful and results, if necessary, in consequences. I think that is up for debate. However, um, there have already been some complaints from some of the athletic staff that some of the athletic administrators and administrators in other positions have been trying to influence Um, some of those that might be interviewed. So I think the investigation is probably already at some level contaminated because of that, that those people who are probably most likely under investigation, those people, you know, in athletic administration and some academic administration should be told not to have contact with these people. But there are uh, meetings going on where this influence is is happening according to some of the people that have talked to me. Well, I say, think, the, I think let me just he, say that yeah, the Kansas City law firm Hush Blackwell, which CSU hired to conduct the investigation, specializes in these kinds of inquiries. Uh, but what were you going to say, Miles? So I think there is some doubt as to if this will be an impartial investigation, even if it's done by an independent company because you're not exactly sure what is being asked, who is being asked the questions. And so I think there is some skepticism to that. I think what's fascinating about this is that there are parallel controversies, for lack of a better term here, Miles. I mean, the CSU Athletics Department had come under some fire for not taking proper precautions around COVID-19 and the idea that Uh, players might have been told essentially to hide any symptoms so that they could keep practicing. Do you want to shed a little light on that dual narrative here? While I was working on the uh, the other story, the racial insensitivity and abuse story, 
some of those same people and others approached me about these protocols that CSU has in place, you know, weren't being followed. Some players told me that uh, some of the coaches were telling them not to report symptoms because then they would have to quarantine and miss practice. I think, you know, as duly noted in my story, there was 27 players missing um, on the last day that CSU had practice on July 29th due to COVID-19 restrictions. So I think that became a concern, uh, and not only in the football program, but other programs at CSU as well. The other concern was brought up to me by numerous people about the reporting process from student-athletes. Those reports go to the CSU Public Health Department, um, who offers interviewers up to then talk to the student-athletes to report the cases. In some of those cases, athletic staff told me that the narrative in the report was different than the narrative of what the student-athletes told them. Hmm. They believe that there was some kind of coercion going on in the reporting of those uh, possible COVID-19 cases by student-athletes. Jimmy Stewart, I am curious if you think there has to be a change in leadership, perhaps at the very top of athletics. Like, can Joe Parker continue as CSU's athletic director after the findings of this report are released? in your mind, and and have any kind of credibility with players, especially players of color? Well, leadership has a responsibility, and they need to be held accountable for the safety and the growth of student-athletes. And that doesn't just include physical safety. It includes emotional and mental safety. And one of the things that has not happened is stopping abuse. You know, they use words that, you know, it becomes corporate speak. We're, we're going to address the problem. We're going to address this. And what I say to people, my bosses, I don't care about addressing it. Stop it. There's no debate whether this is going on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, every other week you're reading about another institution. So this is not about people being dumb. It's about a system that can't correct itself. And what you have to do is you have to have people that want to change that. And what I've seen is that this leadership here has not shown a desire to change this. I'll give you a great example. When this came out, the information that a coach had asked a player to hide a positive COVID test, Joe Parker said, wow, I'm really distressed. This goes against the standards of our, of our program. And I was appalled at that. If I had a child at CSU as a football player, anything that you know showed a lack of integrity, what I would have said, and I think anybody that really, really wants to change, they would have said, I will find that coach and I will fire him. And what we get is we get those corporate blurbs that don't say anything. What happens is incongruence is a really, really difficult thing for people's safety. You know, when you say one thing and you do another, especially with young people, because You want to believe in the leaders, and yet when they do other things, it creates a sense of anxiety. And so in these systems, there's a lot, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. Sometimes they're sort of like father figures or mother figures. And when that happens, there's a sense of hopelessness. And so a lot of times, just like the general population, 
you know, there's there's ideas, there's completed suicides. You know, this can be very, very dangerous for young people, depending on where you come from and your experiences as, as a child. Well, do you trust the investigation? I don't. You know, I've had these experiences where, you know, the best investigations, I work for the military, they have investigations, and they always have the people who are who are accused separate from what they normally do. They don't just talk about no retribution or confidence. They separate them. But there's been no stand down order where you separate the people who are accused. In fact, this is a really comical thing. If you, you know, it's not funny, but I was thinking all of us who really risk our jobs coming out, we have not been given attorneys. We have not been able to talk to Joyce McConnell. Joyce McConnell has never spoken to me. The CSU president. So, yeah. So isn't it interesting that Joe Parker has attorneys at CSU and he's the accused of this? Adazio does. And they can talk to Joyce McConnell, but we can't. Joe Parker, CSU, athletic director, again, Joyce McConnell, CSU president. Miles, do you think that this story would have come to light were it not for the Black Lives Matter movement? Has has this moment of racial reckoning, do you think, made people more safe coming forward or what? You know, really, I think that's debatable. Mm. Uh, certainly, it gave, I think, student athletes of color more of a platform to come out with this. Sure, at some level it did. However, this was building and building, has been building for, you know, a long time. And was that the, you know, final straw? It could have been. What's really important is you have to look at these are student athletes. These are people's children that are being harmed. It doesn't happen in collegiate academics. It happens in collegiate athletics. And so that's a systemic problem that needs to be addressed. It's very difficult to do when the foundation has been set already by an administration. It's not impossible, but under Joe Parker, there's been a constant erosion of credibility among student athletes, staff, and coaches. So now to go back and set that clock back and try and reestablish a foundation built on credibility and accountability and transparency, that's very difficult to do, not impossible, but very difficult to do with the current administration. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Reporter Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan newspaper and CSU mental health counselor Jimmy Stewart. Stewart formerly played for the New Orleans Saints. We talked about revelations of racism in CSU athletics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. Students in the state's largest districts return to class today, but not the classroom. Denver Public Schools educates nearly 94,000 children. 
They learn remotely until at least the middle of October. Statewide, nearly half of K-12 students will learn at a distance, at least in part, for the semester. The bureau chief for Chalkbeat Colorado, Erica Meltzer, is watching all this unfold. Hi, Erica. Hi, Ryan. I also want to note that you're living this. Just about a half hour ago, you were helping get your 10-year-old daughter all set to start fifth grade. You also have a high school freshman. Uh, Briefly, what's your morning been like? You know, it actually went smoother than I was expecting. Um, My my older child had some tech problems getting logged in, but but it's all going smoothly now. And um, we'll see. Yeah, I've given a lot of thought to how a home must have pretty decent internet, especially if there are multiple children and parents who need to hop online. Yeah, we've definitely experienced the slowdowns and the glitches that I think a lot of people have. And even in the metro area, there are still families that don't have internet at all. So that's going to be one of the challenges that the districts doing online learning are going to have to work through. And of course, one of the challenges the families are going to have to work through. I'm just curious, uh, and you you can share what you wish about your own home, but do you have each kid like in a different room? And uh, d- did the school provide laptops or have you had to kind of find those? So I, my older son has a school provided laptop. They were a one-to-one school to begin with. Um, one-to-one is the, <laughs> so they're the education speak for each child having a device. Okay. I did buy a laptop for my younger child. The school would have provided one, but DPS is actually experiencing, like many districts, a shortage of laptops because of global supply chain issues. And Mm. so they asked any family that can provide a device, please do so, so that there's enough devices for those who do need it. And I'm fortunate enough to be in the position to buy a Chromebook, so I did. My children do each have their own room, but my daughter's room is very small. She did not have a desk, and desks are another thing that are become very hard to find due to global supply chain issues and wow. very high demand. And I actually ended up, there's a, there are some shelves hanging from the wall, and so we took out some shelves and repositioned another shelf at desk level, and so that's her desk. She's sitting at a chair at a shelf. <laughs> this is a picture of what families are dealing with, and of course, uh, the picture you paint is easier if you have the means. Uh, so this is going to be a challenge, no doubt, for some families. Let's talk about how Colorado ended up here. Erica Meltzer of Chalkbeat, as I mentioned, about half of the state's 913,000 K-12 students are learning remotely, at least for a few weeks. How does that compare to other states? Well, if you look around the country, some states have taken a much more hands-on approach with the governors directing schools to open or even threatening schools with loss of funding if they don't open Other places have ordered schools to stay closed if certain places are on a watch list for high rates of community transmission of coronavirus. And so in a lot of ways, Colorado is, you know, we have districts forging ahead and we have districts opting for remote learning because of concerns about the rate of community transmission. And we really see the local control playing out around the state. Yeah. So Colorado is a local control state, meaning districts determine their own fates in many ways. And Uh, I suppose some will point the nimbleness of that. So if you've got locally high numbers of COVID cases, you can adapt accordingly. But what kind of guidance did schools receive from the state? There's really been, in some ways, a lack of state guidance in that there's no set thresholds of this is what it means to be safe or this is what it means to be dangerous. And you see different counties setting their own thresholds. 
And none of these are prescriptive. It's ultimately up to the school district what they do. And we saw early in the summer, there was guidance that came out that really recommended small class sizes, make sure you can have that six feet, don't have too many people in a room. And then Governor Polis said, don't worry about that. You're going to be able to have full classrooms in the fall. And so a lot of school districts started planning for that, but then they didn't have any formal guidance for sort of how to do that and what would make that safe. And in some cases, as we went through the summer and cases were rising, we saw that some school districts started to hear from their local public health agencies, hey, your plan makes us really uncomfortable. And so that's why we saw some districts switch back to online after planning for to bring students back. Nowhere in this state is a kid made to go to school in person whose family doesn't feel comfortable doing so, correct? That's correct. There's districts that have done more or less to facilitate online learning, um, but almost all districts have some sort of remote option, or if they're not offering their own remote option, they're directing students to other online options that are out there. Though, interestingly, we did see there's a state online school that supports a lot of small rural school districts, and they were just completely overwhelmed with this last-minute surge of demand that I think was not expected. Yeah, I mean, this is a plan uh, that has changed, and obviously there are many plans given how many school districts there are in Colorado, but with Denver Public Schools, for instance, this is a plan that has constantly been shifting. And so parents and educators and students have all pinned their hopes on kind of one approach, and then things change, either with the virus or recommendations from the state, and you're left uh, with an entirely new outlook, a new approach the next day. I think that's one of the things that's been really challenging. Uh, Denver Public Schools, for example, And this was true of a number of other districts. They started early in the summer saying they were going to have a hybrid approach. Then they said, no, we're going to have students back full time. No, actually, we're going to be completely remote. And it's they made decisions based on viral conditions in July. And things actually look a lot better now. But they've committed to being remote until at least the middle of October to see how things develop. And I think there's a there's a real question to be asked if we had as if we had picked sort of one plan and stuck with it, would people have been able to plan better? You know, would would we have our ducks more in a row? And when we saw some other districts really delay their decision until the last possible moment. And, you know, that has its pros and cons as well. And it's interesting that even within one county, you can have several districts that are taking different approaches. I mean, you know, you cross the street, it could be a different plan. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So for example, down in Pueblo, um, Pueblo 60 serves the city and Pueblo 70 kind of goes around it like a donut or a tire. And Pueblo 70 decided to start remote. They were very nervous about the trend in the virus over the summer. Pueblo 60 decided to bring students back and stuck with it. Now, Colorado does have school choice, so people can enroll in another district. And Governor Polis at various points in the summer said, you know, if you don't like your school's plan, find a school that's doing something else. But of course, the challenge for families is sometimes schools were doing something and then, you know, a week later they were doing something else. In just the last few seconds here, Erica, did the concerns of educators, I mean, we heard from really some terrified teachers uh, that, that just did not foresee going back in the classroom immediately, how much were they able to sway the conversation? I think that that did play a role. You 
it's, I think it's very challenging to operate a school when your workforce is extremely fearful and, and maybe even unwilling to come back into the classroom. And we did see the state teachers union call for a remote start to the school year. And at the same time, I think that union pressure was interacting with a lot of other things, including the viral trends. It got very politicized with Donald Trump threatening to defund schools. And so there's just a lot of things in the mix. A lot of things in the mix for districts and for parents as well, like yourself. Erica, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado. She's also a parent juggling remote learning. And Colorado Matters is back after a break with how the death of Elijah McClain has reverberated around the world. This is CPR News. Fire danger is high across Colorado. The governor has issued a statewide burning ban, and major wildfires have already scorched more acreage than last year. We've sent just about everything we have out, and we're calling from resources all over the nation. I'm CPR News reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis, and the CPR and KRCC newsrooms are closely following developments. For the latest Colorado wildfire updates, go to CPR.org. One year ago today, Aurora police approached Elijah McLean on the street. The 23-year-old black man was taken off life support nearly a week after the encounter. CPR's Maggie Donahue reports that artists are now honoring him around the world. On a wall in New York City, Vince Ballantyne recently painted a mural of Elijah McLean. The piece includes some of the last words McLean spoke while pleading with the officers who pinned him down. That was the most heartbreaking thing for me because I couldn't get past the point of the true savagery in it. This person is talking to you with clear mind and they're young and defenseless and this is what you're doing to him. McLean was taken to the hospital after officers put him in a chokehold and paramedics gave him a powerful sedative. Now, a year later, Valentine says he hopes that sharing McLean's story helps teach more people about racial injustice. McLean's name has been mentioned alongside those of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor during protests against police brutality in Colorado and nationwide. Many remember McLean as an introvert and an animal lover who taught himself to play the violin and even played for cats inside animal shelters. And artists around the world from Missouri to New Zealand, have paid tribute to him. Lisa Lloyd is based in England. She says she felt heartbroken when she learned about McLean. He was trying to put good energy out there. He was clearly had empathy, clearly sensitive. Now, Lloyd is creating a series of intricate paper flowers. She says each custom flower will honor a specific victim of racial violence. And there's one for McLean. She plans to put them all in a big frame to represent how racial injustice is so widespread. When she's done, Floyd says she'll auction off the piece to benefit the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm Maggie Donahue, CPR News. Our next guest wears a lot of hats. Nate Marshall is a poet, a playwright, an editor, a rapper, and assistant professor of English at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Marshall hails from Chicago where he co-wrote the school district's first literary arts curriculum. It focuses on how creative writing can address social justice and mental health. And his new poetry collection is called Fitna. 
And Nate Marshall, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? I'm how doing you? I'm doing well. So glad you could join us. And I know there yeah. are a lot of layers to this title, Fitna. Unpeel yeah. that onion for us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think Fitna is one of these words that I, I really love. And I think one of the reasons why it really appealed to me was because it's, it's this like piece of language, right? That is certainly undeniably black and undeniably like Southern in origin. And, um, and it's also this thing that I think a lot of like black folks in particular have a sort of relationship with where, you know, someone in their life, be it a teacher or an older person in their family was like, oh yeah, that's not a word. Like you can't say that. And so I thought that that reclaiming felt important to me and felt like a good way to, yeah, to enter the work. F-I-N-N-A. Use it in a sentence for us. How, w- how would you most often hear Fitna or use it? Uh, I'm finna go to the stove. Yeah, I'm finna go do my homework. You know. You've claimed this as, as a word. In other words, you're a, a, a literary soul and you're saying, I, I accept this, I welcome this in, yeah. into my circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, what does what is a word? A word is like not a thing in the dictionary. The dictionary was trying to uh, to nail down the words that existed, not define what a word is or is not. A word is a thing that communicates meaning. Finna absolutely communicates meaning. So, yeah. You moved to Colorado about a year or two ago uh, to teach yeah. English and creative writing at CC. Yeah. Um, as I said, you're originally from Chicago, which remains integral to your identity and artistry. Uh, but I understand you couldn't have written Fitna, you know, which is the, the combination of fit and two, by the way, just just in case that wasn't clear. Uh, but you couldn't have written this without really the experience of moving to Colorado, that contrast between Chicago and Colorado. Tell, tell me how that connects to the first poem in the collection, which I'll then have you read. Yeah. Um, you know, so the first poem in the collection is called Landless Acknowledgement, and it sort of came out of... Um, you know, Colorado College, you know, I think, and just in Colorado in general, there's a much more pronounced indigenous presence than uh, certainly in the Midwest where I'm from. And so uh, a thing that is sort of a common feature of uh, public events at Colorado College, back when public events were a thing, um, (laughs) was the process of like land acknowledgement, right? So um, saying that the Utes were the sort of original custodians of the land and acknowledging the other peoples who have been a part of like making the area that we now know is the Pikes Peak region or Colorado Springs, a vibrant place. And, um, you know, I, I thought about that because for me, um, you know, I think that's a really powerful practice. And I think also having like the legacy of a black American, um, I think the sort of one of the existential questions of that identity is, is place, right? Is like, well, where in this country do we fit? Where do we have a home? Um, and for and even beyond this country, right? Because like, you know, the nature of being someone that uh, originates from folks who were part of the transatlantic slave trade is like we have no sense of our like place of origin and have no way to to really have a real sense of that thing. Yeah. So if if there's an acknowledgement of what came before us in Colorado, that's an acknowledgement of the indigenous peoples and lands. And you're saying, what do you do if you are? to some extent, landless. And so that's the setup to landless acknowledgement. And uh, Nate Marshall, go ahead, go ahead and read this really gorgeous poem. Thank you. 
Landless acknowledgement. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we live on some unseated bones. Sometimes me and mine imagine ancestral homes. All I got so far is Montgomery, Alabama. Maybe a boat, maybe a plot of land somewhere so far from the south sides I've claimed that I would get lost on the way. I admit, sometimes my homies talk about their families immigrating and I get jealous. We lost the land we were custodians over before I was a twinkle in the eye of a twinkle in the eye of a twinkle in the eye. Closest I got to a homeland is my mama's Caucasian pitch on the phone calling the police. Closest I got to a homeland is not never calling the police. Closest I got to a homeland is my daddy's laugh in a spades game. Closest I got to a homeland is my lover's tongue talking or otherwise. Closest I got to a homeland is the funk under a DJ's needle in my hand full of a dance partner. Not to be dark, but I am. Not to be dark, but the planet is on fire. Not to be dark, but they move in capitals because the water is coming up. Not to be dark, but our bones are in that water too. Maybe that's my capital. Once the polar capitals melt and there's a whole lot less land for folks to buy and sell and steal, maybe everybody will feel a little more dark, will feel a little more homelandless like we do. Why you think I call my compatriots homies? Maybe ain't no home except for how your beloveds cuss or pray or pronounce. It turns out that was actually quite a prescient poem with the mention of the planet is on fire, certainly feels that way in Colorado right now. The line that really stuck with me, Nate Marshall, is closest I got to a homeland is my mama's Caucasian pitch on the phone calling the police. Will will you expound on that image for me? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is like a lot of people and perhaps like um, particularly people of color like will be familiar with this notion of code switching, right? So the sense that um, one, when they're talking to either folks outside of the community or folks that exist in a different, uh, at a higher level of the sort of power structure, um, that you have to literally talk differently, right? Both in your diction, but also in your tone, right? Um, and for me, like one of the first real clear examples I had of this was being a kid, um, you know, there was there was a sense and it was it was like a thing that was that was spoken in our family and in the community that like if you needed to call the police, yeah, you 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 use a particular tone of voice, right? And and also like sometimes you intentionally misreport things so that um to try and like shape how they might respond, right? Because there was a real sense like, oh, will police respond slower to black communities? And then when they do respond, they respond with a kind of like brute force right and so sometimes like you know i i remember even seeing folks like um like um you know because there's a lot of things particularly in black communities where when you call 911 they just automatically dispatch police and so i've seen people like misreport things intentionally in order to try to like stop that from happening wow. right so um so if someone is injured in some you know like because of a fight or, you know, something like that saying, oh, someone had a heart attack so that they don't send the police, right? Because the police exist as a sort of force of like escalation and as another source of potential violence, right? Which I don't know, I don't know that that's a thing that other people have to like 
think of. That's not a calculus anyone else is doing. Yeah, talk about the anticipation of what might occur when you call 911. Um, that's really important perspective. We're getting it from Nate Marshall. He's a poet at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. His latest collection is called Fitna. And uh, I, I note, Nate, that Colorado is reckoning with the deaths of Elijah McLean in Aurora. They're in Colorado Springs, the death of Devon Bailey. And meanwhile, we know that people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Yeah. Does this moment in America feel to you like a watershed or does it feel to you like more of the same? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that may in some ways, like you're, you're better positioned to answer that question. Right. I think that there is a kind of raising of consciousness right now, but I don't think that consciousness raising is happening in the communities that I exist in and where I'm from. Right. Like I knew that the police you know, we're a violent force. I I know that um, I know that black people have. I'm from one of the communities in Chicago that has the highest infant mortality rate in in the city, right? Like that has an infant mortality rate that would that would look more like a developing nation, right, than the United States of America. And so, like th these things are not new to me. They're not revelations. I think that what's happening now is you. I think you're seeing white people and people from more privileged backgrounds having to reckon with the the fact of these things, right? But, you know, mm. No. It's a bit of a wait and see, I suppose, to see what might actually change in daily life, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not waiting. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm uh, in some ways perhaps less optimistic than, I should be or than other folks are. But but I think like the, I mean, what I say is I do think that there is a kind of reckoning happen happening now. And, and that's interesting to me to observe and to consider, but it's, but it's just not my reckoning. And so like how it plays out and what comes out of it, I have like less to say about than the folks that are doing it. Yeah. I want to note that this year you'll be teaching beginning poetry, intro to creative writing, literature in the age of hip hop and mm -hmm. you'll be helping college seniors write a thesis. Yeah. Uh, you also make music in addition to poetry. So I'd love to wrap up with a taste of your musicianship. You're featured on this track by Sean Peace. It's called Mistakes. Do you want to yeah. say a few words before we hear you in, in this environment? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, this is, Sean is like one of my oldest friends. Uh, we went to elementary school together, actually, but we sort of, um, I, I don't know, we, we kind of put this song together and I think in a lot of ways it it feels akin to the book, right? Because I, I mean, we did make this song as I was writing the book and I think it does have this sense of like the, the necessity for folks and especially men to like reckon with you know, the mistakes that we make in life and the ways in which we fall short. And make the same mistakes again. Sorry, but I'm not good. That's the kind of thing that's difficult to say. Good, but I'm not great. Every time I get close, I be getting in my way. My self-care is a long bath. Baptism in the guilt of a long past. My self-care is embarrassment. Researching and reading on all these therapists. 
My self-care don't include follow-through Hiding in the house couple days in pajama shoes Some call me activist, some call me scholar too Some never call after all, that's the hardest truth Love looking like my granddad did He got Alzheimer's and his mind is loose And I should probably stop for we get that big But sometimes I wouldn't mind so forgetful too A lot of mistakes, it's habitual Like B, like B Trying to live by these principles But high key, I creep Sometimes when I make mistakes, I flee or I leave. End up in the same old place, cause I don't like me. Wake up every morning and make the same mistakes again. Nate, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Nate Marshall is a poet, playwright, editor, rapper, and assistant professor of English at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. His latest collection is called Fidna. A note that Colorado College holds the license for KRCC, which is a part of Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News.